Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Okay, in this commercial, you play a sheet of paper towel. No, and... no, don't say another word. Let me just warm up into this. <clears throat> and now to bed, my fellow paper towels, for we rise at daybreak to soak up the spill and perhaps to die. Death is but a fleeting, fleeting moment, but for centuries the poets will sing of how we wiped, how we did wipe. We few, we absorb and few, we band of towels. No, that's not what we want. This is a much more basic commercial for Bounty. And bounty? Why didn't you say that in the first place? Okay. I'm not leaving you, Mr. Christian, not ever. Go to the dirtiest little corner of the world and I'll be there right behind you with a quicker picker-upper in my hand. That's the Bounty, Mr. Christian, blasting through messes like a cannon on a gunboat. Paper towels are the key to the King's Navy, and- No, 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 no. Look, can I just show you the script? No, it's got to be real. I I'm an actor. I can't just, you know, pretend. I have to live the role. Let's try this. We open on the docks of a northeastern city. There's corruption as far as the eye can see, and then you pan over to me, one hero, with a roll of paper towels, willing to clean up the dirt. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have given me some paper towels that were two times as absorbent as the leading ordinary brand. Stop. That's on the waterfront. Right. Water? Paper towels? Do you see what I'm doing here? Next audition. Soft now. Oh, that this too, too ordinary paper would melt. Please leave. Don't do this to me. I've based my entire career on the work of Mary Jane Foster, who's running for mayor of Bridgeport, by the way. Here comes an interview with her. And now he would still like to be a pepper, too. Colin McEnroe. Right, they said, wouldn't you like to be a pepper, too? And I, I thought, yes. I've thought yes for decades, and then nothing <laughs> nothing has happened. Actually, that was a Connecticut actor, too. It was David Naughton who sang that song. All right, so Mary Jane Foster is with us. She's no longer uh, as famous for her commercials as she is for running for mayor of Bridgeport. She is a lawyer uh, and a vice president of university relations for the University of Bridgeport, also the co-founder with her husband, Jack McGregor, of the Bridgeport Bluefish. Uh, and lastly, uh, as, I, as we are alluding to, she did spend many years performing professionally as an actor, not only on commercials, but other things as well. But she was on iconic commercials. So, I mean, we can't not ask her about that, but we'll, we'll come to it. Uh, so, Mary Jane Foster, first of all, welcome on this rainy day to the, New, the New Haven studios uh, of WNPR. We've got uh, Jonathan Mignicle on the board. Betsy Kaplan is producing. Uh, and so let's actually, let's begin kind of before Mary Jane Foster becomes mayor. Let's begin now. If you were going to tell somebody... Why come to Bridgeport? Why move to Bridgeport? Why move your uh, your business to Bridgeport before you become mayor and solve everything? Um, are there things about Bridgeport now that are just great selling points for this city that, that make you want to be mayor of it? Well, absolutely. You know, I fell in love with this city. I, I've been in Bridgeport about 25 years, living, working, or volunteering, and I fell in love with the city. I fell in love with the city because it's just 16 square miles, you, when you stand in one side of it, you can see the other side of it. When you stand in the south end, you can see Pleasure Beach. From the north end, you can see the sound. And you can wrap your arms around it, and you can give it a hug. Its geography is so discreet. It's so special. And so it was the geography, but it was the opportunity. 
you know, we have rail, we have highway, uh, we have water. It's an extraordinarily rich city geographically. I also fell in love with the people because not only are we incredibly diverse with all kinds of nationalities coming into the melting pot, but there, there is a common denominator amongst us all. We're scrappy. We're scrappy and we're gritty, and sometimes um, that's not as attractive as people would like it to be, but it's who we are. We're resilient. We get up. We pick ourselves up. We get going again. And so this is a city that has a tremendous amount of potential. It has a city that reaches out, that touches you, that Oh, sorry, that's a no commercial line of mine. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> I've been listening to too much of it. No, I'll be so disappointed if you don't do that kind of thing. <laughs> but it, 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 there is something so engaging about this city. You just want to be a part of it. And when people come, as they have been, we have 1,100 new, new residents in downtown Bridgeport over the last uh, 10, 12 years. They love the energy of it. They love the common experience of it. Um, even though, as a friend of mine said to me recently, how long are we supposed to be urban pioneers? There's still real challenges uh, to moving to, say, downtown Bridgeport. No pharmacy, no market, no whatever. But it's a great city to be in. And because it has so much potential, people come. And they come and they fall in love with it, and they are willing to do just about everything. I'm running from mayor because I don't think we're doing enough to encourage people to come or to help them be successful here. But there are so many, many reasons to fall in love with Bridgeport. But its geography and people are the top two. All right, you're running for mayor. Uh, This involves seeking the Democratic nomination for mayor. Uh, That involves uh, qualifying for the primary. Uh, This is like deadline day or close to it, right? What do you know know about uh, where you stand in in terms of signatures you've collected, certification of those signatures? Where are you at? We've collected well over 3,000 signatures, probably pretty close to 4,000. We're just waiting for a call from the registrar. Um, I'm very confident that we will we will be qualified today or tomorrow. Certainly, never been any problems with the registrars in uh, in Bridgeport. In the no, past, so never a problem. Shouldn't shouldn't be a problem. All right, before we get to your elevator pitch for why you'd make a great mayor, tell me why you're running for mayor because that's a separate question, right? I mean, maybe you'd make a great mayor, but you could also you got a nice job already. You could have some time to work on your backhand. I mean, why <laughs> why uh, why are you running for mayor? I'm running for mayor because I. Bridgeport deserves better than what it's gotten. In the 25 years that I've been there, we've had three mayors who just couldn't get it done. Uh, whether it was the corruption from the Ganim administration, so many things happened that were decent and good and put us on a road to somewhere. And then the rug was pulled out from un- under us. And frankly, I don't think we've recovered from the perception problem that created even yet. Uh, We had another mayor who did the best that he could, but faced all sorts of personal issues. So, you know, we we walked right up to the edge and then couldn't get that done. And we have a mayor now who's raised taxes four times, has created absolute chaos in our education system, and just isn't getting it done. I think Bridgeport deserves better, and I think we we should have something different. It's time for a change. I'm not a career politician. I, I have never thought that I would seek elective office, but I think this is an opportunity for a different perspective. I frankly think it's time for a woman to run this city. Uh, women govern differently than men do. How do women govern? 
Well, if you take a look at, if you'll remember the budget impasse in Congress a couple of years ago, government mm-hmm. was about to close down, Republicans wouldn't talk to Democrats, vice versa, all of that stuff. It was the women in Congress who got together, who came together uh, with a solution and got everybody back on track. If you think about your household, not yours maybe specifically, mm-hmm. but households, women typically run the checkbook, run the budget. They say, this is what we've got, this is what we can afford, and we can't do anything else. When you've got strife or trouble in your household, it's the woman who says, hey, everybody come to the table. We're going to sit down, we're going to clear the air, we're going to figure this out, and we're going to move forward. That's how women govern. It's our DNA, I think. And um, I think it's time to give it a try. The current administration is an, an administration that rules by fiat. It's uh, top-down. It's not inclusive. It's not transparent. People are tired of it. And I think it's time for someone who's willing to give the city a great big hug and move it forward. Um, back to that whole household issue. I don't even control the remote in my household. And that's, <laughs> that's the last male prerogative, and I don't have it. Uh, by the way, as we go along here, the number is 203-776-9677. I'm told that means 203-776-WNPR, if you like to spell with your phone. So we, last time, well, two weeks ago, we had uh, Joe Gannon, one of your opponents here. Somebody called in and said, you know, just driving by the city on I-95, you just look off and it just doesn't look good, right? It looks it looks like a poor city. It looks like, uh, you know, some kind of postcard of urban decay. Um, you know, some of Bridgeport's problems are attributable maybe to bad leadership and, and bad mayors. Um, some some of the problems are attributable, attributable to urban poverty, right? It's a poor mm-hmm. city. Mayors have a hard time dealing with that. In other words, it's, it's hard as mayor to make a poor city be not poor. Sure. So what's your response to that? Well, I, th- I think we need to have statewide a, a significant conversation about our cities. Bridgeport in particular hosts the hospitals, two courts, um, a university, uh, and social service agencies. We are taking on the social concerns of our neighbors, mm-hmm. but we, are, we do not have the tax base that our neighbors have. So I think there's a conversation to be had about sharing responsibility for the costs of the social services our inner cities provide. I think it's a really important conversation to have. Um, so when you say that, I'll just pause here for a second. So that sounds like you're pointing towards something b- bigger and better than payment in lieu of taxes. That you know, In other words, cities, and Hartford does the same thing. They host all these mm-hmm. nominally nonprofit um, institutions. Uh, and hospitals, believe me, are only nominally nonprofit institutions at this point. But they host them. They don't pay property taxes. Um, therefore, the, here's, here you have developable land that's been developed for a different purpose. It doesn't perform on the tax rolls mm-hmm. and contribute to the grant, grant list. So what do you do about that? Brendan Sharkey and the legislators, legislators come up with some proposals about this. What do you, what do, you do about that to make those um, properties either perform as taxpayers or get somebody mm-hmm. else to compensate you for, mm-hmm. for them in a different way from what, what happens now? Well, I I don't happen to believe that those properties um, should be performing as taxpayers necessarily. There are are some payments. I believe Quinnipiac University has just given some money to the town of Hamden uh, because they've acquired so much residential property. Um, The University of Bridgeport, as an example, contributes $65 million a year to the city's economy and costs only about $37.5. 
So Bridgeport is doing just fine by the University of Bridgeport. And I don't have the numbers for the hospitals. But think about the court system. You know, if if you are going to sue your landlord or you're getting a divorce or it's um, you have a lawsuit of some sort, you are coming into Bridgeport for those for those purposes. And while there is certainly an economic halo in terms of parking and, and lunch out for jurors and all of that sort of thing, our landmass is taken up by those services we offer the region. So those are a little different. Those are state services. I mean, at the beginning, you mentioned like hospitals and stuff like that. Now uh, you're saying, well, I mean, look, I'll take a property that spins off $65 million and only costs thirty five. Sure. So, so that sounds like they're not a problem. Right. Yeah. Right. You think those things, those places are not a problem, not the reason. What that... I'm saying is I, I don't put the University of Bridgeport in that particular pile. But mm-hmm. what I am saying is that when a city, whether it's Hartford, New Haven, uh, Stanford, or Bridgeport, provides services like the courts, like social services, mm-hmm. um, to residents from the region, there should be some sort of region buy-in that offsets the cost of delivering those services. So I think that's a conversation we we need to have. Um, well, to let, your point, okay. Let me just also just just so we don't lose track of this too. So the other thing you're kind of talking about um, is how schools are funded. Basically, that's mm-hmm. all. What's all this boils down to that, right? Sure. The schools are funded out of the property tax. Your property tax base, because of the system right now, your property t- tax base has a lot to say about at least how much money mm-hmm. goes into the schools. There's also questions about how well the schools can ever perform in the in the teeth of poverty, no mm-hmm. matter how much money you put into the schools. But let's set that aside for a second. So so what do you do about that? I mean, would you change the way schools are funded? Well, the, what we need to do is take a good look at the formula. And I think one of the barriers to that has been the mismanagement and chaos in Bridgeport over the schools. We have a current mayor who's underfunded the schools for three years in a row. When you underfund schools, when you undermine the public schools' operations by putting all of your eggs in a charter school basket, um, it creates a kind of turbulence, a turmoil, that really makes it very difficult for the superintendent of schools, the board of ed, and principals and teachers on down to deliver at the level they should. When you have folks in Hartford looking at this kind of chaos, they are not about to give us more money or revise an education cost-sharing formula until we get our own house in order. And I think that's one of the key imperatives to whomever becomes the next mayor. I certainly would open up the budget, do an an audit, and figure out where the money is going. You know, Bridgeport's budget is only a little bit over $500 million, and half of it, roughly, goes to the schools. So it's, it's pretty easy to figure out where the pots are, so let's take a look at what's in the pot, what's not, and how to better utilize it. The um, well, as long as we're on education for a moment, how do you feel about charter schools? I mean, in the past round of budget talks in the, at the state level, that was one of the few places there was some money, right, mm-hmm. to put into new, even new uh, charter school projects. Uh, what role do you see them playing in in a city like Bridgeport? Well, I am not opposed to charter schools, but. I supported a moratorium on charter schools in Bridgeport. We are not adequately funding the educational experience for 22,000 city of Bridgeport kids. And to put more money into charter schools when we don't have guidance counselors or social workers or drug counselors or family support centers, we in, in an impoverished city, as you said, 
we need more support services for our students so that they can come to school and they can learn. So, and the other issue that I have with some of the charters that are out there is that they're not held accountable. So we've had instances where um, people who were uh, operating administratively or were principals of schools ought not to have been there. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's adequate transparency around the the charter schools that we that we have. So um, I I am supporting a moratorium on them. I was sorry that two more were coming into Bridgeport. I think we need to get our own house in order first. All right. So um, speaking of transparency, I, I have to say, I don't know exactly how uh, I get uh, dragged into covering the Bridgeport election, but although it's been very, it's going to be a lot of fun, I can tell. Dragged but, into. This well, is dragged fun. In. It is fun. Oh, absolutely And fun. it's important. Bad word choice. Um, <laughs> so, but one of the things, so I don't know that much about Bridgeport. That's really what I was trying to set up there. And, but the sense I'm getting is that transparency is kind of a problem there in general with city government. Like, I just read a piece today about it seemed as though like you couldn't really quite read the city budget somehow. Like you couldn't really, that the city budget is not completely transparent. There are areas of opacity, opacity there. Is that true? How, how can that be? How can there be like city documents like the budget that, or the grand list, for example, mm-hmm. the grand list is not well, entirely visible to it's, everybody. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. Uh, the whole budget process in Bridgeport is a mess because mm-hmm. what happens is it's delivered uh, to city council we have 20 volunteers, some of whom may be financial experts, most are not, um, and they've got about six weeks to look at it. And then they are given information by the city attorney and the budget director, but they, they, have their, they don't have their own counsel or, ex, or they experts. Staff. They don't have staff. They have no staff. They yeah. have no way to really know what's real, what's not, and, and they're asked to turn this around in six weeks. In addition to which, they're not given timely current numbers, so they don't know what's actually happening at the moment around the budget. Trying to find financials for the month of June Mm -hmm. is like finding a hen's tooth. Uh, You just don't get it. And and everybody says, that's not really a big deal because the auditors are coming in. We'll see where we are. But all kinds of money moves from pot to pot in those last couple of months of the fiscal year in Bridgeport. And the city council doesn't have the expertise or the time given them to really pull all of it apart and understand it. So we, we have a major issue with transparency. We also, as part of that transparency issue, we have the conflict of interest issue, which is to say currently we have four city employees who serve on city council. So you have the president of city council voting on the budget. They're voting on their own raises, the raises of their friends, their families, other people they know. They're, you know, looking at the mayor, the the city attorney, who's telling them what to do. And they're going to do whatever they're told to do because otherwise they're not going to have a job tomorrow. We worked very, very hard to pass this bill, this conflict of interest bill at the state level, and it did not pass. But we, we need to clean up that whole conflict of interest thing between city council and the executive branch. Yeah, that's a, a problem at multiple levels of government right now. So what's your what's your estimate of the problem? In other words, if, in fact, there's opacity in the budget process, um, if, in fact, there's sort of things that people need to know that they don't know, um, you know, there's two kinds of numbers games usually. One of them is basically saying that 
things are better and more sound than they really are. So this goes on at the state level a lot. We don't really have a deficit. Everything's fine. And, and then we find out that that's not the case. Mm-hmm. At the city level, sometimes the opposite thing goes on, right? That we need funding for that, – that, that certain some services and departments get overfunded. Uh, that, in fact – there's just money flowing in mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't really belong in those areas. So, I mean, if you had to sort of say, based on what you do know, what you think is wrong with Bridgeport's budget, is it one of those two things or is it a third thing? Well, I just don't think there's any discipline around it. It's like um, every year the mayor spends whatever he wants to spend and we get towards the end of the year and we've got you know ta- tax anticipation notes we have to take out or because we we don't have enough cash to get to July 1 and then it's oh whoops we're going to need to raise the taxes just a little bit and and that has happened four times in 7 years so what I let me give you two examples one is the office of the mayor's budget 7 years ago was about $235,000 a year it's now 650,000 something that we know of and he has just continued to add staff, public relations people, writers, all of this stuff. So it's a 62% increase in the office of the mayor's budget. Why? We, we can't afford things for our schools. We can't afford things for um, our infrastructure. And yet the mayor's office just keeps growing. He's also carried uh, ghost positions. So those are salaries and benefits that are sitting in the city budget. And when he gets to a place where he needs some money for something, the pots of money just sort of move around. So we, the main thing that we need is an audit to figure out where the money is and where it isn't, and then some real discipline about how we are going to spend it. And, and that will take priority, prioritizing, um, and it should be done in conjunction with various departments. One of the things that is a hallmark of this administration is the way they govern. It's by fiat. You're told what to do. So I think what you should do, and I on uh, my Facebook page, Mary Jane Foster for Mayor, you can see um, a document I published called My First 50 Days, what I will do in my first 50 days. And one of them is sit with each department and talk about what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, and what the opportunities and threats are. I happen to believe that we are a city with lots of opportunity, but I think we need to get some discipline and focus around it. This has been like an ADD administration. Is it the problem just ADD? I mean, you've, in some of your public statements, really kind of questioned the integrity of actually both of your major opponents. Mm -hmm. I think at one point you might have said you were positioned between a crook and a liar. If the shoe fits. So you feel like Mayor Finch is not a truthful person. Well, he hasn't been truthful about many, many, many things. And, of course, Joe Gannon was convicted of uh, lying. Right. So what's, what is, I mean, uh, okay, shifting stuff around in the budget and everything, that's a problem, but it's also kind of SOP and municipal government a lot of the time. Are there things that, um, not to sound cynical, um, are there things that you feel that Bill Finch has really effectively lied about, lied to the people of Britain? Well, when he ran the first time, he told everyone we'd get a $600 rebate. That never happened. He double-dipped and took his state salary and his um, city salary for like four months, and he said, only until the election is really set, and then I'm going to give all that money back. That never happened. The list just goes on and on. The biggest lie, of course, 
was his conspiracy to have the state come in and take over our schools. And why was that a lie, exactly? Well, it was a conspiracy. It was a group of people who got together and orchestrated very carefully what some called the 4th of July massacre. They called for a meeting of the Board of Ed on the Friday before the 4th of July at like 4.55, and then orchestrated a vote with the, the Board of Ed to ask this to to fail to pass a budget, and that then was de facto dysfunctional board behavior. Mm-hmm. So they just by chance had a meeting with the state board of education, where the mayor went up to Hartford and asked the state to take over our schools. And it was at that meeting where he said that democracy doesn't work; it doesn't always work, and especially in Bridgeport, where so many of us are former offenders and immigrants. Yeah, talking about so, yourself. So I mean, wow. The um, uh, we have to take a break here uh, pretty soon. But um, my recollection was there were people on the board of. I my recollection is dim, but my recollection is there were people on the board of education who were essentially who were essentially saying, "Take the keys away from us," right? There were some. Yeah, there were some, but not all. Certainly not all. Um, all right, let's take a break. We're talking to Mary Jane Foster. She's running for mayor. We'll take that break and we'll come back. We'll find out more about Mary Jane Foster. Yeah, 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 throw a frisbee in Bridgeport, Connecticut, throw that frisbee as far as you can, good old Bridgeport, what a great place to go, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, the ring, it's just so awful. Uh, it starts and stops. Uh, you can't make a plan. All right. So we're talking to Mary Jane Foster. Uh, she's running for mayor of Bridgeport. So, I mean, effectively what you are is a reform candidate, and you're kind of an anti-machine uh, candidate. By the way, as we go along here, if you want to call in, the number is 203-776-9677. So um, and, and what are the things that you're effectively doing, not effectively, you're, you're, you're avowedly doing, is talking about meaningful ethics reform. Although, I might add, one of your opponents, Joe Gannon's doing the same thing, right? He just called for an office of public integrity or, or, or whatever. I mean, anybody can call well, for ethics reform. He just proved that. Um, that's true. That's true. And I would say, suggest that if you elect an honest mayor, perhaps you don't need that office. I mean, I don't come to this race or I will not come to that office with that same kind of baggage. I will also point out to you really interesting I don't know, ironic set of circumstances for a guy who's calling for an office of public integrity. He's been out and his people have been out knocking on doors telling them it's okay for them to support him because I'm throwing my lot in with him and will become his chief of staff, which, of course, is totally untrue. I would never serve in a Ganim administration, and I would never support Joe Ganim for mayor. So the same guy who's calling for public integrity hasn't quite gotten it down yet. I believe Mayor Finch has also selected, uh, suggested that you and uh, Joe Gannam are sort of helping each other get on the ballot. Right. Is that true? No. No? There's no... I, I have seen no evidence that Joe Gannam or his people are helping us. <laughs> there was a whole lot of talk out there about, oh, we're going to help her get on the ballot. I'm going to get on the ballot just fine all by myself, and I have yet to see any help from the Gannam folks. 
Um, I think it is uh, uh, important to get to know you a little bit. And so, um, and first of all, we should say, this is your second time doing this, right? Yes. Um, a lot of people having been through the rigors and horrors uh, of one municipal campaign uh, might not be doing this again. Is there any reason why you really felt like you should do this one more time? I mean, the odds are kind of a little bit stacked against you. I think that's fair to say. Well, that that's your perspective. Mm-hmm. The, um, I'm running a second time because I really do believe Bridgeport deserves better. And I think my sense of who uh, Mayor Finch is as a mayor has finally caught up to the, the population out there. With, with you know, We've had seven long years of the same old stuff, and not a whole lot has happened here. And then with the drumbeat, of a guy who was convicted in 16 to 23 counts of public corruption saying he thinks he'll earn his redemption his redemption by getting his old job back just said to me that somebody needed to stand up and say enough enough these are two career politicians one can't get a job one can't keep a job how about someone who's entirely different who doesn't need a job but who wants to do right by the city i don't have any agenda other than that um, it, it, it is occasionally suggested, not by me, that one possible agenda that you might have is that, that Bill Finch has a long simmering issue with the University of Bridgeport, going back decades, going back to the, the, the shift in management of the university to sort of an offshoot of the Unification Church, that as a councilman he fought that, and it, it is just never healed over. He's still got an issue with the University of Bridgeport. You obviously are an official of the University of Bridgeport. That's why you would run against Bill Finch twice. How much truth is there in well, that suggestion? that's a very small reason to run against uh, run against him. You know, the University of Bridgeport is going gangbusters. We're doing great work. We're growing. Uh, we've put $60 million into the campus. We've put $65 million, or a net of whatever, $32, $35 million into the city's economy. The issue that I have is that Bridgeport is a small, geographically a small city. It's it is a city that desperately needs resources, and the University of Bridgeport is a resource. And I think it, is, it borders on negligence if you are the mayor of a city that needs all the help it can get, and you will not acknowledge or accept or partner with your city's university. Every great city has a university. I mean, really, think about it. And we have brilliant, brilliant people. And we have wonderful students, and we have lots more to offer the city. So we're doing it on our own. He can get on board or not. I wouldn't run against him for that reason. There are far bigger reasons, like my taxes that have nearly tripled since he became mayor. Right. Although, I mean, you said it was a small reason to run for mayor, but then when you described it, it sounded like a big reason. You're the vice president of a university that is the university in the city where the mayor hates the university and won't partner with it. That's a great reason to run it. Well, it's a great great reason to to change the person who sits in the mayor's seat, no question. But it would have to be a much bigger reason for for me to run uh, than just that. Um, okay, we got to talk about uh, the most exciting thing about you, which, no, I, this is not the most exciting <laughs> thing about you, but uh, you did have a career as an actress. I did. Um, and you were in 200 commercials? Uh, some 200 plus. 200 plus. You won a Clio? I, well, I didn't personally. Your commercial won a Clio. But my commercial won the, the 1980 Clio. It was Kodak, first day. Oh, this is the one where the uh, teacher is taking pictures of the kids yes. to get to know the kids. Yes. Yeah. See, I, I know your commercials. <laughs> so how, how do you wind up being in 200 plus commercials? How, how does that happen? Well, contrary to 
popular opinion, you have to work really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I majored in theater in college. I moved to New York with $227 in my pocket mm-hmm. to be an actress, and I was, you know, starving, um, doing off-off-Broadway theater. And an agent saw me and said, would you be willing to do some soap opera work and commercials? And I said, sure. I had no idea actors did that. So I started auditioning for commercials, and it became, I just, I became very successful with it. And so pretty soon it sort of just overtook everything else, and uh, I stopped doing theater, and I really concentrated on television and radio commercials. I, by the way, uh, I was a pepper. You were a pepper? You were I, a pepper? I'm a were pepper. You You're a pepper. Wouldn't you were like you in to that be commercial, a pepper? Really? Yes, it was. Were you like dancing around? Dancing, yes. Yeah. I can with, still do part with, of that. With David Naughton, that one? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah all right. Yeah. Um, wow, I didn't even – see, I pulled that. I, I just like – AT&T, hot. reach out and touch someone. Yeah, that e. one? E.F. Hutton, my broker's E.F. Hutton. Don't squeeze the Charmin. Did you do that one? Yes, Mr. Yeah. Whipple. Ring around the collar. Ring I was the, the dirty mom. Yeah. yeah. You were the dirty mom. <laughs> well, I was the mom with the little girl's dress that was dirty. Yeah, and the dress talks to you, right? Doesn't there some, <laughs> something that says ring around the collar, right? I- I don't. I have no idea. I don't remember. It's a high concept ad, Mary Jane. You should do uh, you this voice from nowhere. That's right. I don't think you really say anything in that commercial, right? You just sort of look at. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, yeah. The the clean mom and I exchange. Oh, you do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you. There was a dirty mom and a clean. Mom. And a clean mom. Oh, Absolutely. I didn't miss that commercial. <laughs> So, um, and E.F. Hutton, was so you were one of the people who just stops talking because somebody no, says E.F. No, no, I was uh, getting my baggage at a, at a baggage claim center, and I turned to my friend and say, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton, and E.F. Hutton says. Oh, so you're, the, you're like yeah. the, 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 the person who sets yes. off at the moment yes. of silence. That's pretty good, Yeah, actually. it was fun. Um, and I think I might have seen you in a diaper commercial. Were you in a diaper commercial? I did every diaper commercial. Yeah. I did a commercial for every diaper For every diaper? Made. No brand loyalty? Uh, no, none. Yeah. Johnson & Johnson loves – I did two Pampers ads. I did practically every cold medicine uh, out there, uh, including one that involved a nine-second sneeze. I'll spare you, but – Oh, so you had to sneeze for nine seconds? For nine seconds. Yeah. Uh, that must have been an interesting audition. It was. Yeah. It was. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I, I saw an outtake from Dustin Hoffman's audition for that commercial. Well, I mean, <laughs> the, you know, all joking aside, so that's a, I mean, in a way, this is, it's kind of an interesting thing. Like, why do you think you were good at commercials? I mean, were you, in fact, well, good at getting people to sort of trust you? I mean, that's what you have to sure, do. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, for one, I was a, I was a trained actor. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I had studied acting for years and years and years. I also was very disciplined about it. You know, mm-hmm. in, in show business, there there's an adage that if you show up on time right. and you're clean, you can get a job. Right. And so I did that. Um, I was reliable. And then pretty soon you deserve, you earn a reputation as a person who can do this, this and this. And you're requested. One of the great funny stories, though, is um, uh, an agency called about a Pepperidge Farm commercial, mm-hmm. and they said we'd really like someone like Mary Jane Foster for this ad. And my my agent said, "Well, let me check. I don't think she's got a conflict." And they said, "No, no, we want someone like Mary Jane Foster." And she said, "Well, I just looked. She she doesn't have a conflict with Pepperidge Farm." Mm-hmm. And they said, "No, we want someone like her." Right. So it was like. <laughs> The, the old joke is sort of get me a young Mary Jane Foster. They, they right. didn't want that. They just yes. wanted somebody like you. Right. Yeah. Someone like me. I wonder what that would even amount to. Was, I don't know. It was like you're a trout that was played out or something. <laughs> exactly. You know, have to get a trout on the line. Same yeah. thing happened to me actually just after the Kodak 
ad with uh, GE. It was when they were launching We Bring Good Things to Life. Mm -hmm. And the casting director said, I want something just like the teacher in that Kodak ad. And I said to her, are you kidding? And she said, no, just like the teacher. I said, well, that's me. And she said, oh. <laughs> I didn't do that spot either. Right. So you, yeah, you don't get in a way you kind of don't cre get credit for the role that you did. Right. People just know that that role existed somewhere right. and and that somebody did it. And my understanding, I mean, I the my only point of reference is that I, I did a, a long interview with Michael Bolton, who worked at a different part of the industry, mm -hmm. but he was bro broken, starving, like for real, cut off the heat and mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff, and so and suddenly. He did this, uh, started to do this thing, which his family referred to as shaking the money tree. That that you know, he could not only feed his family just by right. writing jingles, singing jingles mm -hmm. in particular. I think mm -hmm. so. This is like a very lucrative thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. It is. Yeah, absolutely. You get like a little check every time it runs or something. Or, yeah, absolutely. Residuals. They're sort of called residuals. Huh. Did you actually do any soap operas? I did. I never did. Uh, con I did small contract work. I never had a role in a soap opera. Right. I mean, clearly the Finch and Gannam campaigns would dig that up really fast, right? <laughs> if you were some kind of vixen. Right. Yeah, that would be part of their opposition research. Right, no. I, I was never really typecast as the vixen. So why did you get out of show business? Well, for one, I was getting along in the tooth. I yeah. mean, I was 40 years old. Didn't stop Jan Minor. She was Madge the Manicurist. Boom, I know, right I know. Hartford girl. But my, the number of auditions I had per week went from, you know, like a dozen per week to one every week or two or right. whatever. But the main reason that I left show business was because of an experience I had at what was then the YWCA in Bridgeport. And I was asked to come work on a benefit for um, domestic violence and sexual assault victims. And I fell in love, literally fell in love with the work that, this, that is now the Center for Family Justice did. So at 42, single mother of two, I went to law school. Mm. I applied to the University of Bridgeport, which became Quinnipiac. And when I uh, graduated at 45, I set up my own practice, and I represented women and their children and families in crisis. And I loved it. And that, it was a profound experience for me. And it fundamentally changed my life. And really, everything that's come uh, after that comes from those moments. What, what was what was profound about it? I mean, what well, what reached you? I was I was actually I don't tell this story very often. I was um, standing in a room with a group of women who were graduating from job reentry program, and this young woman talked about what it took her to get to those programs, and how she woke up her children in the morning after she'd laid out their clothes and packed their lunches and made their breakfast. And she took a bus, and she dropped her kids off, and she took a bus, and she went to work. And then she took a bus, and she came back uh, to what was in the YWCA. And then hopefully a relative would pick her up with her kids and take her home. And I realized the struggle that women have, and I realized how incredibly fortunate I was. And it just fundamentally changed my life. I said, this is the work I want to do. Women should be safe. Women and their children should be safe. They should be financially secure. They should have equal opportunity. And it is, it's been what I've done really ever since, whether it was boards of, of nonprofits I've sat on with financial literacy or a homelessness, uh, whether it's the work I do at my church around homelessness um, or the creation of 200 jobs at the Bridgeport Bluefish. 90% of those jobs went to Bridgeport residents. We partnered with uh, agencies that could help people gain job skills. 
And when that happened and we bought all of our services and, and goods and so forth locally, boats rose with the tide. It was where our commitment was. And it all came out of those moments and that time at the YWCA. I was, by the way, I was raised by my mother and grandmother, and they had very high expectations of me, despite there never being, you know, a male role model anywhere. And in that moment, I realized that I needed to do better by them. We're going to take a little break. We're talking to Mary Jane Foster uh, in the final segment. If you want to call in, you may even have a question about the bluefish, about Jose Offerman. I don't know. Uh, 203-776-9677. Willie Mo Pena, uh, call up. Two, two, you, actually, if you could just call up, 203-776-WNPR. Uh, give us a call. It doesn't have to be about the bluefish. I was just kidding. At least she wasn't in any of those GoDaddy commercials. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, Jonathan McPants, and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Katie McAuliffe and Allison Ehrenreich. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Lenny Grimaldi. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff singing Billy Joel songs at Testo's, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. Tomorrow, our Pooh Show. And now, back to Colin. That might require a tiny bit of explanation. So we are doing a show, a Pooh Show. The Pooh Show will include uh, a conversation about the so-called no-poo movement, which is actually a pretty significant group of people rejecting the use of shampoo. Then we're actually going to talk about poo, like poo, uh, because, in fact, there's a movement, not a movement, there's a project to harvest precious, precious metals <laughs> from your poo. There's actually gold and silver and platinum. Don't try to do this yourself, all right? Uh, this is not like a home project. It's more like panning. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll be talking about that. Then we'll also be talking about Winnie the Pooh in the final segment. There's actually news about Winnie the Pooh, so it's an all-poo show. High concept, what can I say? We're talking to Mary Jane Foster right now. Uh, she looks like And she you expect be... me to follow that? I know. Well, you, I expect you to tune in tomorrow. Um, <laughs> so um, I just want to come back to one thing you were saying uh, there towards the end, which is that women should be safe, their families should be safe. This is a subject that's dear to your heart, I think, not only because of the story that you told, but because of your childhood, right? Mm -hmm. You were brought up by your mother, and your father left, right? Right. You, you grew up in a sort of uncertain... He walked out on us when I was four. My mm -hmm. younger brother was three, and my older brother was ten, and pretty much never looked back. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was... My mother once sent him a telegram and said, Mary Jane needs glasses. I hope you can help. He telegrammed her back and said, wish it were you. So I, fortunately, I had these two extraordinary women, and they were, they were tough, they were strict, but they loved us. And so I grew up believing that if I put one foot in front of the other, I could pretty much do anything I ever wanted to do. We had two rules, never tell a lie and don't make a promise you can't keep. Um, but I, I didn't that until makes my you totally unqualified for politics in Bridgeport, <laughs> but whatever. I think it makes me absolutely qualified for politics in Bridgeport. Um, but it, it was, uh, it was a long time before there were positive male role models in, in my life. Um, so I, you know, I, un I understand hand to mouth and I understand the safety issue. Um, I don't think there's a family out there that hasn't been touched by domestic violence somewhere and. My family certainly is no exception. So it, it, it is a cause that's close to home, but it's also the right thing. You know, pay equity for women. 
um, equal health care options for women. Well, I, I don't know why we're still having this conversation. Mm-hmm. I really don't. So if I can advance any of that, I'm happy to do it. Um, let's talk about uh, uh, the other kind of safety, which is uh, uh, there's some fundamental questions about safety in Bridgeport, about crime in Bridgeport, shootings at Trumbull Gardens, mm-hmm. uh, police staffing. Um, this is going to be partly an election about crime, I think. I think I think you're right. You know, four years ago when the pension plan for the police changed, we all knew it was designed to, to encourage police officers to retire earlier, which meant they would be retiring healthier and thereby saving us costs, and um, it would make our, our current police force more nimble. So mm-hmm. we, we knew there were going to be retirements on mm-hmm. an annual basis. Why we haven't recruited to that, I don't know. But it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out there had to be a consistent recruitment of officers, recruitment and training, because you can't just say, oh, my God, we're understaffed and recruit a bunch of people because it's it's pretty much a year before they're out on the street um, and, you know, fully operational as police officers. So we are down at one of the lowest police staffing levels we've had in decades, decades. And we, you know, the city, people are still challenged. We still have the highest, I believe, highest unemployment rate in the state of Connecticut. There, there are all kinds of things bubbling out there that make it ripe for for real problems. We is also it, is it ripe for real problems, or is it having the real problems right now? In other words, do you feel? First all of all, we should we should say that that um, it, it did appear for a while as though uh, Mayor Finch was going to restrict, or somebody was going to restrict access to crime statistics in between now the and the mm-hmm. election. There was some attempt to choke that off. I think there's been some right. revision of that position since then. What was that all about? From where you sit? Well, from where I sit, it was you know the whole notion of Bridgeport getting better every day. That's the only message that this mayor and his staff will allow anyone to regurgitate. And it's just not true. And so while some crime statistics are down, others are up, let's call it what it is, and then let's address it. One of the things that we haven't had in years now is community policing. Just because you have a patrol car patrolling a neighborhood doesn't make it community policing. And so what, what we had in the... Bridgeport gets better every day dogma is apparently the mayor's chief of staff saying, I don't want any more videos out there. And whoever, whichever PR person it is that the mayor employs, saying to the police, let's not be reporting these all the time. And they got caught, you know. We should say that Mayor Mayor Finch will be on our show next week. And then that's it. I don't care who else is running for mayor of Bridgeport. That's it. That's it. No more. (laughs) Um, So... um, uh, where's your uh, substation? Is your campaign opening a substation? Well, no, it's it? it's at a secret, undisclosed location. Yeah. That way we can be more no, more mobile, right. move all around. But, you know, the idea of dueling substations was just absurd. Just for people who don't know this, the Mayor Ganim's campaign opened a police substation, which, which he had seemed no un- highly unorthodox. Well, no. Hi- highly unorthodox. Let's just call it that. How about no authority? <laughs> I mean, so you're not opening a substation? No, I am not opening a, a substation. What I will do, though, is work with the police. The, the difficulty we've got is that we have a police union that doesn't get along with this administration or even its chief. To the extent of actually having endorsed Joe Gannam instead of this. Right, police. absolutely. And last time they endorsed me. Mm-hmm. And so what you need is a mayor that can work with the police union so everybody's on the same page. 
I, I said to Chuck Paris, who's a, the head of the union, I still have many, many friends on the police force. There are many officers who are supporting me despite the endorsement. But I said to the head of the union, you know, what's wrong with sitting down and having an open conversation about what we need? What's wrong with saying, okay, this is what overtime has been, oh, average for the last 10 years, the last five years, whatever is relevant. And taking a look at that and saying, okay, how do we make that better work so that it's equitably divided, so that it it impacts pension here but not there? Or how do we make your response better? Uh, One of the things I've heard from police officers is they don't feel they have the training they need. They'd Mm -hmm. like to have more training. Let's not be a Ferguson. Let's not be a Baltimore. I mean, we – we we have lots and lots of challenges, and when you have low staffing and you have folks who are working too many hours with too few resources, stuff happens. Let's not go there. Um, I think we've got time for one last question. We've got time for one question, right, Jonathan? Yes, we've got two, about two minutes left, less than two minutes. So this seems as though, and maybe it's just typical of urban municipal campaigns, is though it's going to be kind of a nasty campaign among the three of you. I mean, and, and I, I, I'm not even quite sure what question I'm asking. It doesn't seem like your personality, but that's sort of who you are. But you're running against two people uh, in, in a three-way race where nobody seems to have much respect or patience for anybody else. Is that just kind of the way it has to be in this particular campaign? Well, I think given the dynamics of this campaign, that's that's certainly where it's headed insofar as my two opponents are concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, remember, they've got everything to lose, and I've got everything to gain. So whatever they, whatever jugular they are going to go after, um, I'm pretty much out of that fray. But you're which, not afraid to go for the jugular either. I mean, you've done no, that even today with no, Finch and with— uh, I'm, with, I'm not. I'm yeah. absolutely not. But it's not about going to, to the jugular for me. Mm-hmm. It's about stating the truth, mm-hmm. which is that we have a guy, we have two fellows who completely have underperformed. One for some, for some really bad reasons, and the other one just because he's not disciplined and not consistent and incompetent. All right, well, so how about somebody new and different? How about a woman? All right. The great thing about people who work in show business is you can give them the wrap it up sign, and they know what they know what that means. So, Mary Jean Foster, it's been great to visit with you. It's Thank been you fun for being here. Uh, coming to New Haven. Thanks to uh, Jonathan McPants and Betsy Kaplan for producing today. We will speak to Bill Finch next week as uh, our the final leg of our Bridgeport Triangle. If you are somebody else, you're running for mayor of Bridgeport. I can give you then phone numbers for the Faith Middleton Show, where we live. Whatever. I'm sure someone would be happy to talk to you. Mrs. Wolf, please don't squeeze the Charmin. But Mr. Whipple, it's so soft, so irresistible. you squeeze that Charmin one more time, I will call security so fast, and you will never shop here again. Do you get that? Uh-huh. Do you get that? Yes. 